Our first reading this morning is from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, beginning at verse 11 until the end of the chapter, and that's on page 200 of the Old Testament sections of the Bible. Surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea, so that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life, so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We turn to the New Testament for our second reading. First letter of John, chapter 5, beginning at the first verse. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God conquers the world, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. Sometimes it can feel as though fake news has taken over the world. Honestly, sometimes I'm not sure who or what to believe in anymore. If my social media is anything to go by, the world is full of people who think in ways that are very similar to me. As we merrily share our favoured Guardian articles, which have been carefully written to simultaneously feed and assuage our vague collective sense of liberal middle-class guilt. 
but common sense tells me that this can't be the whole story of my country. So sometimes I make a, an effort to step outside of my carefully constructed echo chamber. And I read an article or a blog from a paper or an author that I, that I don't agree with. And of course I'm astonished at what I find. And I wonder how anybody could believe such lies just as I am sure that those who regularly read the material that I struggle with cannot believe that I, an intelligent man, have myself been so easily deceived. Where or what truth is and lies can be very hard to fathom. I've been particularly struck just recently by the difference in the reporting between the Russian news agencies and our own over both the Salisbury attack and the events in Douma in Iran. According to the British press, the weapons used in both cases are most likely of Russian origin or used with Russian support. According to the Russians, both events are staged and fabricated. <coughs> who do you believe? Does who you believe depend just on where you live or who else you've been listening to? Who, who knows where truth is? It's no wonder that lesson number one in the How to Set Up a Dictatorship handbook is that you first take control of the media. In the end, it usually doesn't matter if it's true. What's important is that people believe what you tell them. If you want people to trust that you are the salvation to all of their problems, just tell them it's true and silence all other voices. The various vested interests that finance and control the various wings of the Western free press, they know this very well and use it to great effect. It's widely acknowledged that more than one British Prime Minister has been elected on the strength of the editorial direction of the Sun newspaper. And whilst the extent of the impact of the social media news manipulation perpetrated by the, until this week, our next door neighbours, Cambridge Analytica, seriously, they were based in that building just there until they were closed down this week, but we don't know yet what the full extent of their news manipulation has been in both the Brexit and Trump votes of the last few years. But certainly there is a truth in the fact that if you can control what somebody is reading and hearing, there's a good chance you can control the person. There's no doubt we live in strange times politically. We have established orthodoxies facing threats from all sides and maverick and extremist voices are garnering more attention and power than they deserve. And we still don't know yet how the various political and economic cards that were flung into the air following the 2008 financial crisis will land, but it's a fair bet that the rich and the powerful will end up with their voices being heard above those trying to represent the poor and the weak. And it is in all of this context that I want us to hear our reading for this morning from the first letter of John that Duncan read so beautifully for us just now. It is a reading that takes us deep into the question of where true power lies, where truth itself lies, and where lies lie. The logic of this passage is not entirely straightforward. If you have your Bibles open, you may want to follow it through with me. Various commentators tie themselves up in knots, trying to work out how it all fits together. 
I think it's worth our while trying to follow through John's logic here in this passage because he is making a profound point about the way the world works. And his starting point is Jesus, which is generally, I think, a good place to start when you're trying to do theology. (laughs) He says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the answer to the question of who are the children of God is that they are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. This was not a neutral statement in the first century ancient world. The various Greek and Roman religions into which Christianity was emerging believed that the children of the gods were either gods themselves or possibly were half-god, half-human hybrids who became the great heroes of old, people like Odysseus and Ulysses. The Jewish scriptures also have an echo of this idea, of there having been heroes of old who were kind of half-human, half-divine. You can read about it if you want to in the strange story of the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, which follows fairly swiftly on from the story of the sons of Jubal, of course, in Genesis chapter 4, where Jubal is named as the ancestor of all those who play the lyre and the pipe, if I remember correctly. By the time you get to the first century, the dominant Jewish perspective of who a child of God was, was that a child of God is someone whom God has adopted or shown special favour to, such as the great King David or one of his descendants, or possibly the long-awaited ultimate son of David who would be their Messiah. These are all called sons of God in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's also worth noting that the idea of being children of God was also a concept that was applied not just to specially favoured individuals, but to the whole Jewish people. You get this in Exodus and in Hosea. Well, the Christian perspective being explored in our passage for this morning by the author of 1 John is similarly multi-layered. The very earliest Christians drew on their Jewish heritage for metaphors to understand what they had experienced through their encounter with Jesus. And they kind of fused the idea of a son of God being a human slash divine being with the idea of him being a Messiah born of the house of David. And so in the Gospels, we get stories such as the virgin birth being used to convey their understanding that Jesus is no ordinary human, but rather he is the son of God, as well as being the son of man and also the son of David. And this theological journey that the early Christians had already taken is in the background to what we meet in this letter of 1 John, who then takes the logic a step further. 1 John tells us that it's not just Jesus who is a child of God. He may be the son of God, but also anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, is themselves also now a child of God. And just as we saw how sometimes in the Jewish scriptures, the whole nation of Israel could become the children of God, so the same is true for those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. They are all children of God. The logic John then uses to prove this is a kind of proverb where he asserts that everyone who loves the parent loves the child. This means that if you love God, you will love Jesus. 
And it builds on the, the previous assertion that if you believe in Jesus, you are yourself a child of God. So the point is that if you yourself are a child of God, and if you love God, then you have to love Jesus, but you also have to love all of God's other children. And here we get to the nub of his argument. If we are all children of God, then we must love one another. And if we do not love one another, then maybe we don't really love God. He goes on. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Our status as God's children begins with our affirmation that Jesus is Lord, but we know that it is true by keeping his commandments. As John says, for the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. We will know that we are God's children who love our Heavenly Father when we obey his commandments. And God's love is expressed for us, his children, by giving us these commands for us to keep. And one of the things I hear time and again as a pastor is that so many of us, deep down, doubt that we are loved by God. Ruth's sermon from last week took us to the heart of this. And her message was that God loves you, get over it. And amen to that, and, but, what if you can't? What if I can't? What if in my heart of hearts, despite everything I have been told, I feel I am unlovable even by God? What if that is true for you, for us? We have a crisis of self-hatred in our country. We have so many people carrying wounds that are so deep that often they can barely be acknowledged, let alone brought to healing. Did you know that the UK has the highest rate of self-harm amongst adults of any country in Europe? This is our mission field. And I know from my own struggle with self-harm over many years that it can be a demon which it is hard to exercise. If the world could learn the love of God, so many things could be so very different. The London homelessness crisis continues to deepen. With this last year seeing the seventh consecutive rise in rough sleeping, Last year saw an 18% increase in rough sleeping in London compared to the year before. And those of us who spend time in and around this church, this building, during the week, will know from our own experience of a building which tries to keep its doors open to offer hospitality to those who come through them, we will know that this is true. And some of us sat here this morning in the congregation will have had first-hand experience of what it is to have nowhere to sleep indoors at night. I'll say it again, if the world could learn the good news of the love of God, as opposed to all those other voices which clamour so loudly for our attention and our allegiance, if we could learn the love of God, so many things could be so very different. And how do we know that God loves us? How can the world learn that God is love? This knowledge will come 
it seems, according to 1 John, not by just contemplating it or meditating on it. Rather, says John, we learn that God loves us when we keep his commandments. This is an active, not a passive process. And what we're talking about here is most emphatically not the Ten Commandments of the Jewish law. I've argued before, and will doubtless do so again, the Ten Commandments of the Jewish law are not binding on Christians. They're in the background to Christianity. The whole point of the revelation that Jesus brought was that the commands of the Jewish law could not make a person righteous before God. The experience of the Jews ultimately was that they served to reveal God's wrath at the insidious persistence of human sin. The Ten Commandments are a burden none of us can bear. In contrast, the commands of God that reveal his love are, as John says, not burdensome. We discover our status as God's children, dearly loved by God, when we keep the commands of God that come into the world through the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. We discover God's love for us when we listen to and obey the words of his son, Jesus Christ. The word of God made flesh. As we enter into God's love, we do so when in obedience to this written, revealed word written in Christ that leads us into practicing love for one another. The command that reveals God's love is none other than the love command itself. I was so glad when you sang and had us singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. It absolutely takes us to the heart of it, doesn't it? We find it in John's Gospel, chapter 13, where Jesus says to his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. But it is so easy for us to hate one another, just as it is so easy for us to hate ourselves. Of course, we don't call it hatred. We're far too reserved for that kind of language in Britain. But we might admit sometimes to finding someone a little bit difficult, which, of course, is code for something far worse. And we might subtly but effectively sideline those whom we struggle to love, quietly distancing ourselves from our sisters and brothers in Christ. And we might find ways of exhibiting our passive aggression towards others, all the while maintaining our own perspective of self-righteous restraint. The Christian church is very good at tearing itself apart. The Baptist church is very good at tearing itself apart. But, but, if we can learn to love the children of God, if we can learn to obey the command of God spoken in Christ, that we should love one another as he has loved us, then this is a victory of faith which can conquer the world. And here's the fascinating part of John's logical flow in our passage for this morning. Having started with Jesus and the love that God shows for all of his children who believe in Jesus and having moved us from there into the commands that those of us who are God's children must love one another, we suddenly find ourselves in a position where we can conquer the world. 
we're into the great mission imperative. It turns out that we are not commanded to love each other just for our own sakes or for the sakes of our churches. We are commanded to love each other for the sake of the world. As John says, whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He takes us back full circle to our believing in Jesus, which was what triggered our status as God's children in the first place. If we believe, then we are children. If we are children, then we are loved. If we are loved, then we must love. And if we love, then we conquer the world. That's John's argument in a nutshell. The whole world is saved by the love that God's children show for one another. Because it is through our love of one another that God's love for the world is made known. So if, like me, you sometimes find yourself despairing at the state of the world, if sometimes, like me, you're afraid to turn on the news for fear of what you will see, if sometimes, like me, you find yourself despairing at the state of the church, if sometimes, like me, you don't want to go places that have got Christian written over the door because of fear for what you will encounter when you get there, well, here is good news for a change. The love of God conquers the world and does so through the love of God's children for one another who live in obedience to the loving command of God's Son. This is why what we do here on a Sunday matters. It would be so easy for us to not go to church, to look for our spiritual sustenance elsewhere, online, in a book, Christian TV channel, via our Christian subset, social media, bespoke echo chamber where everyone thinks like we do. But that is to avoid the commands to love one another. It's to avoid the necessity of living in that tension of intentional community, of forging and sustaining relationships even when they are difficult. I'm going to be honest... I don't like every single person in Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church equally. And I'm going to take a guess that the same is true for every single one of us. And that is why this church matters. Because if we can't work that out, if we can't find ways of loving each other and living well together despite our differences, then God help everybody else. The church, I firmly believe, is wherever the sisters and brothers of Jesus gather to worship him as the Christ. And 1 John tells us that when we do this, we are learning to live in the love of God. And that the love that God has for the world is being made real in our midst. I do not think it is overstating it to suggest that because we are the body of Christ and that Christ's body is the hope for the world, it is through us that God's love for the world in Christ will be revealed. And so we come to the cross, the ultimate moment of God's love for us, the body of Christ that is broken for the salvation of the world. It's not enough to be simply baptised by water into a loving community. It's a start, and if you want to be baptised, we're going to be doing a baptismal service here on the 10th of June. So talk to me if you have not been baptised yet and you would like to be. 
But when we are baptised in water, we are also baptised into the body of Christ, which is his church. The body of Christ which is crucified before it is ever resurrected. The pain and the suffering that we bear together is the mark of the love that binds us to one another and is a sacrament of the love of God for the world. I was very struck when we did a little survey a couple of years back. We asked people, why you come to Bloomsbury? And time and again, the message was, I come, I wanted it to be for the preaching. I wanted it to be for the worship. I wanted it to be for the location or the social ministry or all the other stuff we do. But no, the consistent message was, I come because this is my family and I belong here and it is the community to which I belong, where I am loved and where I love and where we work it out together. That is why people come to this church. And that's good, because if we can love one another, the love of God in Christ for the world is made known. The pain and the suffering we bear together is a mark of the love that binds us one for another. It is a sacrament of the love of God for the world. We bear in our midst the marks of the crucifixion that Christ bears eternally. We have to learn to carry our own cross, to die to self, before we can truly know what it is to enter the new life of selfless love that God places before us in Christ. This is how the world will be conquered, when the church learns to live in love, as all God's children follow the command and example of his only begotten Son. When we create a community of love, we create something that is deeply, fundamentally true in a way that nothing else is. Because as we do this, we discover the truth that God is love and that God loves us absolutely and that God loves the world absolutely. And this is the truth then that we offer to the world because it arises from our own practical lived experience of living it into being. And so we're back full circle, back to the world of fake news where nothing is to be trusted and no one is to believe, be believed and everyone wants to be our saviour. But we come to that world with a message to proclaim and a testimony to offer through the spirit of the one who has shown us the truth. As John puts it, the spirit is the one that testifies, for the spirit is the truth. We are the children of God. And we offer the testimony of the truth that God is love. And we do this because we are called by the Spirit of Christ into a community of love that bears witness to a new way of being human. Where love triumphs over hatred and life triumphs over death and the love of God is made known through God's people to all people. Amen. Loving God of all peace, we turn to you now with thanksgiving in our hearts to pray for the world you died to save. In the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, we catch a vision of the end of violence and the cessation of suffering. As we lift our eyes to the cross in thankful worship, we see all the pain and hurt of this world present in the broken body of our Saviour. So help us to lift our eyes with courage, to fearlessly face the forces of evil that continually seek to mar your image in humanity.
May we see with your eyes those systems of oppression that masquerade as truth. And may we learn from you how to see through the propaganda that would deceive us. So we name before you the ideologies of division that distort and divide humanity. From racism to sexism, from socio-economic bias to homophobia, we see people divided one from another, with families fractured and societies segmented. And we commit ourselves to living differently, to modeling in our midst the unity that comes through Christ, where all are equal and all are equally loved by you. And as we lift our eyes to the cross in thankful worship, we ask that you will open our eyes to the alternative future that you are bringing into being in and through us, your people. So in thankful worship for all that you have done through the cross, we lift our hearts and our hands and our voices. Keep us from hardened hearts and compassion fatigue. As we hear the news each day with seemingly unending stories of suffering from around the world, it is all too easy for us to close our hearts to the litany of sadness and to focus on our more immediate, more parochial concerns. So open our hearts and drive us to prayer as we bring before you those close to us and those far away. We pray for all those affected by terrorist activity in recent months. We pray for all who work for peace and for those who have to try and keep the peace. We ask that they will have the courage and creativity to explore other paths to a future where spirals of violence are disrupted and where people on all sides have their humanity restored. We pray also for those near and dear to us. We hold before you our friends and our families. And we ask for your grace in all our relationships, that we might live in love with one another. So with open hearts, we lift up our hands in thankful worship, offering our best efforts to the service of your coming kingdom with hands open to welcome the stranger and open to give as we have received. We offer our daily labours before you. From the workplace to the home, may all that we do reflect your love for all people. From those who we touch to the items we hold, may our lives become an offering of thankful worship. May we be the hands of Jesus in this world, and may all that we do be honouring to him. And so with eyes open to the cross, and hearts open to the world, and hands lifted for service, we raise our voices in thankful praise. And as we name your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord, we speak and sing into being an alternative reality where all other claims to power are brought under the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. As we worship you and you alone, we unleash upon the earth the antidote to idolatry, 
and through the proclamation of your salvation, the way is opened for people to find release from their fears, their guilt, and their sin. So help us to speak truth to power, to raise up our voices in advocacy for those who cannot speak for themselves, to speak comfort for those who mourn, and words of love to those who hear only condemnation. In thankful praise, we raise our voices, we lift up our hands, we open our hearts, and we lift our eyes to the cross. Receive our worship, great God of peace and love. Amen. <laughs>